you were between the ages of four and the second grade, you were dismissed to kids' club. Well, we are walking into what will be a three-week series that I've entitled Seek the King. As we enter into this Christmas season, it's, it's really easy for us to make Christmas about so many other things and miss the king. It was occurring to me the other day while driving that you see signs sometimes that say, keep the Christ in Christmas. And it occurred to me that more often than not, we, we keep the moss in Christmas and we make it about the more rather than about the Christ. And as I've reflected over my life, I was looking back and considering all of my Christmas memories. I was thinking about the times as a child of, of running down the stairs to see the presents I got, or, or the times even as a teenager when my older brother, who was much older than I was, would wake us, the kids, up so that he could see what he got for Christmas. I have so many different memories of the Christmas season. I remember every year we would decorate the tree, and every year we would listen to Christmas music. And every year when the song Silent Night came on, it would bring my mother to tears. And she would talk about the memories that she had of her dad and of her dad singing that song. And of course, at this point in my life now, every time I hear that song, it brings me to tears because it reminds me of my mother and the time I got to spend with her. And it reminds me that she missed her dad, and so it, it brings me to this place. As I work back through all of my Christmas memories, I can remember so many different things and so many different aspects, both exciting, both joyful, but also some really hard challenges, too. And I think if we're honest about ourselves, when we come to the holiday season, we all experience those things. It's pretty simple for all of us to kind of get excited about Christmas, for the presents, for the gifts, for the family, for the traditions. And even for some of us, it becomes a, a sad time or a time of mourning because we get stuck in the, the friends that we've lost or the relatives we've lost or the, the times we used to have. And in all of those things, it becomes so easy for us to make Christmas about so many other things than the Christ. It's possible that we could have a very full, a very meaningful Christmas, that we could make tremendous memories and acquire great treasures and miss the king. So for the next three weeks, I want to take an intentional look at a handful of biblical characters just to see what their perception was, just to see what their experience was, and to take a look at where they were in Scripture. This morning, we're going to look at the three wise men. Now, initially, before we even open our Bible, we need to do some corrective theology. If you have a nativity scene, please take your wise men and move them at least 16 feet away from the nativity. As we'll walk into that process, these guys weren't around when Jesus was born. We'll walk through that. It, it took them quite a ways to get there. And so as we walk into the Gospel of Matthew, let me read it for us, and then we'll start working through the text. Matthew 2, 
verses 1 through 12. If you've got a, if you don't have a Bible with you, by the way, there is a red ESV in front of you. We would love for you to take it. Um, We're on page 807. But this is what it says. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for, for, whom, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them the time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that had, they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And they opened their treasures, and they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now I suspect, having read that text, that this is probably not new to anybody. I, I suspect most of us have had a lot of time to to hear this before or have seen it before. But I want us to walk through it with a little bit of a different perspective. I want to walk through it with the intention that we'll, let's look at these characters, let's see what they're doing, and let's see what their focus was. And were they after the king? Having opened the book of Matthew, there are a couple things I should tell you about Matthew. One, Matthew was a disciple uh, he wrote his gospel probably between the 50s and 70s A.D. Some of these facts uh, will actually play a significant role, so you don't have to like write them down. But just to hold on to the idea that the, the gospel of Matthew was probably written or somewhere around the 60s A.D. It was quoted by the early church father Ignatius around 110 A.D. That becomes significant for us because it starts to give some historical authenticity to the reality that some 50 years after it, this book is being quoted the Gospel of Matthew is distinctively Jewish. In fact, this book quotes more Old Testament authors than any other New Testament book with the exception of Revelation. Ninety-six times will it take us into the Old Testament. The purpose, over, overarching purpose of this Gospel Matthew wrote to his fellow Jews was to show them that Jesus was the Messiah and to present Jesus as the promised king. So he had a point. He was writing for something. So let's dig into the text. Two verses one. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now the first stop we want to make is to note that this is a historical statement. We're going to do a little bit of apologetic work this morning and, and we want to stop and point out historical statements. This is a, a substantive statement because if Jesus was born, it, it tells us of his humanity. It tells us that he was human, just like us. 
And it places his birth in a historical event in the days of King Herod. King Herod, also a historical figure. In fact, King Herod ruled for nearly 60 years and he died in the fourth in the year 4 BC. Becomes substantive because that actually pushes Christ's birth to before that, according to history. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And of course, we'll come back to that here in a moment. But I want you to see what Matthew's doing here. After he's telling you that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he makes a very interesting comment. He says, Behold, wise men from the east. Now this verb behold is an interesting one because now he's actually asking us to behold a group of Gentile unbelieving men. Why is he asking us in the middle of this text to stop, to pause, to observe, and to contemplate these guys? What was so significant that just a second chapter into his gospel, he's saying, behold, contemplate, think about these guys, these wise men from the east. So let's talk about them for a moment. The wise men, commonly called the magi. A magi is a Greek transliteration that comes from a Persian word that means experts in the stars. These guys were astrologers. Interestingly enough, we find them other places in the Bible if you track the magi term. You find them throughout the book of Daniel, which is significant. We'll come back to that too. More likely, these guys a priestly cast of Chaldeans who could interpret dreams. Now, why is that significant? Because Matthew in his gospel is now pointing us to some Gentile astrologers. He's asking us to pause and consider these guys. To consider some astrologers. And the fascinating thing about that is, if you've ever thought about an astrologer, they're not the most highly thought of people. Particularly not in that context. It would be like me using a fortune teller, a psychic, or a gypsy as a source. Initially, if I were to tell you that I met with a fortune teller last week, behold the fortune tellers, you would think I was a little bit crazy, wouldn't you? You would want to know what my sense of purpose was, what my compass was, what was holding me down. And that's exactly the point here. Matthew is pointing us to this group of men. By the way, the Bible is not specific to how many of them there were. Tradition suggests, as of the 6th century, that there were three. Tradition actually gives these guys names. But none of that we can historically verify. We know that these guys, these Chaldeans, probably from Babylon, probably guys who had encountered the Jewish scriptures when the Jews were taken into captivity, some 900 miles away into Babylon, these the, the Jewish people would have taken their books with them. They would have taken the Hebrew scrolls. And so these astrologers would have come into some knowledge of, of the Hebrew Bible. So they've studied it. They looked at it. They encountered it. The text tells us these wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now when Matthew says behold, and he's pointing out these astrologers, he tells you that they've come from the east to Jerusalem it means these guys went on a 900-mile journey on a camel. Now, I've only ridden on a camel for about 100 feet, and it really wasn't pleasant. So I, I can't really imagine what puts a guy on a camel for 900 miles, 
but it's got to be significant. So when they show up, when they show up in Jerusalem, having followed a star, they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This group of men have saw a star and they followed it for 900 miles. They've sought it out. They've pursued it. So let's talk about the star. Some say it was a supernova, a giant exploding star. Others say it was a comet. Some say it was a conjunction of Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars all lining up. Some say it was the Shekinah glory of God. The glory that led the children of Israel through the wilderness showed up in the sky and led these Gentiles. What it was, we don't know. That it was historically there, we're confident of because the Bible talks about it. God used his creation to declare himself to these Gentiles as he's done repeatedly throughout the history. And they followed it. They followed it. Now it's possible these guys had some awareness of other New Test- Old Testament texts. It's possible they were familiar with Balaam's oracle given in Numbers 24, which says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. That in the book of Numbers, there's a prophecy that a star will declare a king. In fact, if we worked through it, there are some 90 prophecies that lead to Jesus Christ's birth that are significant. We're going to look at just one this morning. But what's significant for us is to realize that the heavens declare the glory of God, according to Psalm 19.1. It's always been true. God has always made his manifest presence known to his people. In fact, Romans 1, 19 through 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. God has made himself known even to these wise men. So what's significant about that? Let's go to verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now just for a moment, let's stop and consider what the text is saying here. It's saying that a group of Gentile men who'd had some mild exposure to God's word and yet had seen a star got on a camel and went 900 miles to seek the king. And yet God's chosen people who'd had his book for the ages, who could study it readily, had no idea what was going on. That is incredibly significant for us. Because you start to see these people's responses to the king. Let's look at Herod for a moment. When Herod hears about the king, what's his response? Herod's troubled. Herod saw the king as threatening. Herod's struggle is he had made it all about him. So when he hears about somebody else, it challenges him. Because he'd come into this selfish place. In fact, reportedly, Herod had killed some 70 other people who were thought to threaten his throne. 
So to hear of another one just challenges his selfishness. But what is more astounding is the chief priests and the scribes. These people whose job it is is to take God's word and work through it constantly. What do they do? When asked the question, what's going on? They have the answer. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you get to verse 6, and he quotes Micah 5.2. And the interesting thing about these chief priests and these scribes is you've got religious people who know the answers, and yet show incredible apathy when it comes to the king. They're able and quickly able to go to Micah 5.2. So if you've got a red Bible, flip to it for just a moment. It's page 779. But this is what Micah 5.2 says. It says, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my, my people Israel. So what God has said through the book of Micah, by the way, let's talk about Micah for just a moment. Micah's name means, who is like Yahweh? Who is like our God? Micah prophesied during the reigns of the Judean kings. He was, he was an 8th century prophet. Now what's fascinating is if you'll accept that an 8th century prophet wrote that the king would be born in Bethlehem in the 8th century... And yet the king wasn't born until at least four. You've got some 700-year gap testifying to that. Now, just because I can be a little bit of a nerd, I wanted to bring a little bit of nerd information to you. I have a piece of a Dead Sea Scroll that's a little significant. If you'll shoot the Dead Sea Scroll up, this is a, a, just a minor piece of what's called the Minor Prophet skull, Scroll. It was located in the Nahal Hever Caves in 1953. This particular piece of fragment was, is dated to being about 50 B.C. and is known to be a copy of a copy of a copy. They know it's not an original. Now, what's significant about that is, I kid you not, literally, that's Micah 4 and 5. This is the prophecy about Jesus found in Israel, written probably 800 years before the birth of the Christ, saying he'd be born in Bethlehem. Now, that's significant for us, guys. It's significant for us to realize that this whole book, regardless of where you stand on it, holds together with incredible authenticity. It's incredible for us to realize that this whole book that was written over about a 4,000-year period by a whole group of different folks in lots of situations and lots of scenarios have the same testimony that Jesus is the king. The fascinating thing about that is when you start looking at the people who show up in the text, you see an awful lot of apathy. In fact, that's the one thing that plagued the Israelites over and over and over as God revealed himself to them and gave them a covenant. And then they found themselves breaking the covenant. And God revealed himself again and gave them a different covenant. You find over and over and over the people got apathetic about who he was. So much so that when we come to this text in Matthew 2, these chief priests, these scribes, the most religious people of that culture knew exactly who he was, knew where he was going to be born, and didn't 
care. The wise men were seeking. The wise men were pursuing. These Gentile men who God had shown a sign to wanted to know. I had the opportunity over a number of years to do ministry, to do a lot of high school ministry. A number of years back, I was in Dallas, I was a youth pastor, and a girl came into our youth ministry. Her name was Amber. A fascinating thing about Amber is that Amber didn't come from a Christian family. And when Amber was, came to some knowledge of the gospel, it radically transformed her life. And the funny thing is when Amber came into our youth ministry, she was surrounded by this group of girls who had been reared in the church. And immediately they found her passion threatening. Immediately they were put off by this person who was so excited about Jesus but had only been walking with him for a month or so. And it's interesting that we can do the same thing. That we can get so accustomed to a book, we can get so accustomed to the truth, we can get so accustomed to the king that when somebody gets excited about it, We're put off because we think we know. We think we've got the answers. We think we've nailed it. Please hear me say we about six times. That's an inclusive term, including me. These wise men were seeking the king and all of the religious types who knew what they should do didn't. They were passive. They were selfish. They made it all about them. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. He pulled these guys aside and ascertained from them the time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. These guys, do you think they needed to know Bethlehem? They'd followed the star. God was revealing to them. God was going to continue revealing it to them. But it's almost like it's mocking Herod for Herod to know. Hey, will you guys go check out and see if the Messiah was born? I'm literally too lazy to walk the near less than a mile. I I don't know how many of you have been to the Holy Land. I had the opportunity a number of years ago. But just about, if you stood on the Temple Mount to Bethlehem, is probably a par five. You give me a one wood and a couple of three woods, we could hit the green. It's not that far. What that suggests here is Herod, who's standing in Jerusalem, is literally not wanting to go 500 yards to see the king. Hey, will you guys go check that out? I've got some busy, I've got some busy work to do. Herod might have said, you know, I've got some family coming to town. We've got some details we need to work out. I've got a turkey that we've got to get in the roast. You, you know, my mother-in-law's coming. There's some stuff going on. We're busy here. You check out the king. You let me know what you hear. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Of course, we know that's a lie, but he's so passive and aggressive that he won't even look for himself. He just wants the information. Verse 9, after listening to the king, this is talking about the wise men, they went on their way, and behold, the star that, that they had seen when it rose went forth from them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
that God was so specific in his leading and guiding of these Gentile men that he used a star. That's one of the reasons why you have to consider the fact that God was using his Shekinah glory to reveal himself in a significant way. I don't know how often you look at the stars, but it's rare that they lead you to a particular house in a particular town. Now, I can follow him a little bit and go, yes, let's go west. But a star has never pointed me to stop somewhere. And that's what happens here. Until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And you see these men, these Gentile men, who've received some revelation from God, persevering and working through challenges and overcoming objections and seeking the king. Verse 11, and going into the house, just as a matter of note, it's a house, not a cave, not an inn. It's one of the things that testifies that these guys are showing up 14, 15 months later. And they saw the child with Mary, his mother. It's a child. It's not a baby. He's not in a manger. And they fell down and they worshiped him. That's Christmas. They fell down and they worshiped him. And then they opened up their treasures and they gave him gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They gave him gifts befitting a king. They gave him exceedingly valuable gifts. In fact, one of the commentaries I studied suggests that here in a couple moments, you Joseph and Mary have to flee to Egypt, and they, they were clearly a very poor couple. Uh, and that probably they were able to use some of the provision of this gold to allow them to move to Egypt and back. It was a significant gift that was given that allowed and that enabled this young couple the mobility to keep Jesus safe and to follow God. In verse 12, and being warned in, a, warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And just as God had led them to the king, he continued to lead them. I want us to stop for just a second and dig into these characters a little bit. And digging into these characters, I want to ask you a question Where are you? Where are you this holiday season? You've got roughly, I'm bad at math, 18 more days to prepare yourself for Christmas. I would think that a lot of us have our trees up. I would think a fair number of us have our Christmas lights up. If you don't have Christmas lights, please put Christmas lights on your house. We enjoy it. It gives my kids something fun to do during the winter. We've made lots of preparations. Have we made preparations for the king? Have you engaged into a, a, there are so many ways you could do this, but I really want to challenge you to engage an intentional Bible reading plan. Shocking a pastor would tell you to read your Bible. Thank you for the courtesy laugh. (laughs) I want to ask you to intentionally read your Bible, to search out the king, to find him in the midst of these pages. 
than the middle of all the holiday shopping that's left to do and the yams that are left to cook or however you celebrate, to seek out the king, to make it about the Christ and not the moss, to make it all about him, to realize that on Christmas morning, our Savior came into the world because our sin was too much for a holy God to tolerate. That punishment had to be doled out because of our sin. And that God sent his only son into the world. That he would receive that on our behalf. We celebrate the sufficiency of what God did. The step God made in sending his son into the world on Christmas morning. Make your Christmas about the king. You have lots of choices this season. You could be like Herod, who made it all about himself, who only wondered what he was going to get, who only wondered about the traditions he'd keep, who only wondered how his holiday season was going to go, who had rules and expectations and wanted everyone to conform to his idea of how this day should go. We could be like the chief priests and the scribes, the people who knew all the right answers, the great Sunday school attendees that had their hand raised all the right moments could answer any question. They studied God's word, they knew the text, and when asked, they could even produce the answers. But it sure didn't mean anything to them. They sure had a lot more going on than to pursue the king. Or as God is so common in his word to do, we could choose the least likely character. These gypsies, these fortune tellers, the magi, who sought out the scriptures, who sought out God's revelation, and who got on a camel and went 900 miles Pursuing God's leading to see where God would take them. And when they got there, they fell down and they worshipped him. And they gave him everything. What will your Christmas be like this year? My favorite Christmas song is O Holy Night. It has always moved me. It has always moved me from an emotive, spiritual place. There's a command in the middle of that song. You probably all know it. You probably all sing it in your mind the way I do. But in the middle of that song, when it says, fall on your knees and hear the angel voices, that's Christmas. This holiday season, seek the king. And be like these wise men who fell to their knees and worshiped him. Let's pray. Father, as we enter into a holiday season, I, I know as everyone here, there's so many thoughts and pressures and expectations and Christmas lists and there's so many things to do. And by no means should we punt all of it there really are some fun traditions, some fun family 
traditions, some fun times to be had. But Father, I confess before this church that so often I make the holiday season all about me and about what I hope for and about what I want. And I don't pursue your son. And I admit that I can be so much like the chief scribes and the chief priests and the scribes and I can know all the right answers and yet be apathetic. Father, this season I, I ask on behalf of me and my family and this church that you'd give us the heart of the Magi who sought you out. That in the midst of this season we would seek the King. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.